morning and welcome to Rising. We have a show for you today. Brianna, what do we have? <laughs> On this show, we have Eliami Olerin and Denise Long discussing some recent legislation in Los Angeles that banned homeless camps near schools and daycares. Plus, Julia Manchester and Chris Steyerwalt will be back with us to break down what happened in yesterday's primary in Arizona and beyond. But first, Speaker Pelosi touched down in Taiwan and risked a fallout with the Chinese government, all to say this. Today, our delegation, of which I'm very proud, came to Taiwan to make unequivocally clear we will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan and we were proud of our enduring friendship. Turns out it wasn't all for just democracy. The Washington Post reports that Pelosi met with Taiwan's biggest semiconductor manufacturer on her trip. And just yesterday, the speaker filed a report that shows her husband, Mr. Paul Pelosi, sold up to $5 million worth of chip maker stock NVIDIA as Congress prepares to vote on the chips bill shortly. Washington applauded Nancy Pelosi's trip, but pundits were quick to point out that there couldn't be a worse time to provoke China in the midst of what's happening in Ukraine. Robert Ross, senior advisor to the Institute for American Studies in Shanghai, joins us now to discuss. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. All right. So yesterday was basically a 24-hour game of why is Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan? The whole time she was in the air, people were guessing and trudging up all of the geopolitical context of the last uh, 50, 60 years to try to help uh, us understand. So, you know, what do you make of this trip? Fundamentally, why was this so tense? Why was this perceived as such an, an escalation when ultimately she said very little that seems to be controversial? Well, we have to see this in context of the last three to four years of U.S. policy, where despite our declaratory policy of a one-China policy, the United States has broken many of the norms of U.S.-Taiwan relations that go back 30, 40 years. From the mainland perspective, we're eroding the one-China policy, and we're implicitly supporting Taiwan against the mainland and giving them the courage to challenge the mainland on the one-China principle and Taiwan independence. So for the mainland, it's a trend. At some point, as the trend continues and you push buttons and you challenge the status quo, you, the other side will say it's time to stop. This trend is getting dangerous and we're drawing a line. And that's what we're seeing with Nancy Pelosi. She's just not a member of Congress. She's second in line for the presidency, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, the most powerful Democrat in Congress. And after 25 years, she's the most senior person in the United States government to visit China. So for Chinese, this is a, another step toward eroding the norms of U.S.-Taiwan relations where the trend could well lead to, they fear, support for Taiwan independence, and that could mean war. So rather than war, they're trying to warn us, stop your trend, be cautious, this is a serious issue. It's not clear to me what the Biden administration's foreign policy even is uh, on any front, but particularly with respect to Taiwan. It didn't seem like the Biden folks really wanted Pelosi to do this, and that she was going to do it anyway, but if they 
absolutely forbade her to do it. I, I have to imagine she would have taken Biden's call saying you are not allowed to do this. So where does that leave us with our thinking of like, what what is the administration's policy and, and do they want to ease back tensions with China or are they willing, I guess clumsily with Pelosi leading the way, to walk us toward a, a greater confrontation? Well, Biden policy has been a continuation of Trump policy on Taiwan, but even more so. It's been walking a tightrope. On the one hand, improving security ties with Taiwan, economic ties, political ties, while simultaneously trying to avoid a crisis and increase tension in the strait. So from the Biden administration perspective, Nancy Pelosi has thrown a wrench in the works, making it difficult for them to walk that line. Going forward, they're going to try and signal the mainland that they did not expect Pelosi to visit this is not their policy, and they want to maintain stability. The ability to do so, however, will be challenged because the mainland may not stop simply at the exercises we're seeing today, but there could be a longer-term challenge to Taiwan security until they're satisfied they've got the attention of the White House. I want to be really clear about what the, the context is here. My understanding is that there was a policy in place that relied on a kind of strategic ambiguity, that the, you know, a, a certain kind of non-committalness about the status of Taiwan was ultimately beneficial to both mainland China and the United States that enabled America to normalize relations with China in the 1970s. And we've basically both been playing this game where nobody says declaratively what it is one way or the other so that nobody has to engage in a direct military escalation. But what has been happening is that certain strategic realignments from the U.S. and its allies in the region are seen as provoca provoca provocations. And in return, certain um, you know, uh, military growth in China, et cetera, is seen as a, provo a provocation to the West. And so there's a little bit in a similar way that we sometimes talk about with respect to Ukraine, uh, a, a chicken and the egg situation, who's gone first and who has really poked the bear, as it were, who is responsible. What is your view on what you know, has provoked this most recent escalation and, and, and you know, inspired Pelosi in particular to take this trip? Well, we need to first address what we mean by strategic ambiguity. Mm. This was an American policy saying, should there be war in the Taiwan Strait, we're not sure what we would do. But the mainland and Taiwan should take into account that we might act in ways that are in neither of their interests. Now, this had a way of deterring the mainland because they couldn't be sure what we would do. But it also cautioned Taiwan from being too forward-leaning, too provocative on independence, because they couldn't be sure what we were doing either. Now, the last four years of growing U.S.-Taiwan security, political, economic ties, has de facto eroded some of that ambiguity because our support for Taiwan has become stronger. This, as I said earlier, has the mainland nervous because it implicitly says to Taiwan, we have your back. And from the mainland perspective, that suggests it might encourage Taiwan independence. Now, you're absolutely right. The rise of China has created concern around Asia and the United States about what Chinese ambitions and, and intentions are. And we've drawn closer to Taiwan in part to try and resist the rise of China. Taiwan, if you will, is an instrument of American policy toward, toward the mainland. And, and that is a major explanation for the growth of security ties. At the same time, the region is quite nervous. We see an American politician apparently going to Taiwan to grandstand that could cause major instability in the region and could draw such countries as Korea, Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, Japan into a conflict which they have no interest in seeing develop. 
So this has actually not only undermined U.S.-China relations, but undermined American efforts to strengthen its relations with its allies and security partners throughout Asia. Hmm. Well, local Taiwanese people didn't seem to necessarily appreciate the speaker's visit. Here you can see a large crowd gathered to protest Pelosi in front of the American Institute in Taiwan. Despite the critiques, Pelosi explained her decision in a Washington Post op-ed where she slammed China for, quote, intensifying tensions with Taiwan, adding that her visit should be seen as a, quote, unequivocal statement that Americans, Americans stand with Taiwan, our democratic partner. However, the former United States ambassador to China, Max Baucus, warned that Pelosi's trip could be provoking Beijing too much. Let's watch. And really what this is doing, it's, it's pushing the uh, uh, support of democracy a little closer to uh, crossing the line into independence. That's the real problem here. And the more that uh, Taiwan will not formally declare independence, uh, that would be a disaster. But the, they're going to get close to it. And if they get too close to it, uh, China has no recourse but to take action. This is uh, existential to China. It was driven home to me when I was serving there. Tibet, um, Taiwan, Hong Kong, it's, it's, not, it's non-negotiable. And we're, we are playing with fire, but we can get pretty close to the line. And Pelosi is pushing us much, much closer to recognizing uh, Taiwan as an, as an independent country. And once, once, we, get close, once we get there, um, we're, we're going to pay a price. That's a member of Pelosi's own party. Pretty harsh condemnation. What's your response to that? I'm on the same page as former Ambassador Baucus. Um, this is, if you will, poking the bear. Everyone wants to support Taiwan. Everyone is supportive of democracy on Taiwan. Everyone is appalled by the trends in mainland domestic politics. Nonetheless, actions have consequences. There are no free lunches out there. And one has to ask, to what extent is is uh, Senator Pelosi actually supporting democracy to a significant degree when U.S.-Taiwan ties are far more important in security, political, and economic realm to her contributions at the margins at best. But we can see the costs that she's incurring for the United States by the rising U.S.-China tensions, tensions in the region. And so if you do a cost-benefit analysis, it's very hard to see why she's doing this and what the upside is. Well, to what do you attribute the fact that you know 26 Republicans signed a letter in support of Nancy Pelosi? There are some really odd bedfellows that are coming out of this conflict. What do you think is motivating both Pelosi and those who would support her? And how much does this have to do with the chips bill and the fact that so much of the semiconductor industry is based in Taiwan? Well, I think for many Republicans, this is a way to box Senator Pelosi into a corner. Now that you said you're going, we're going to hold your feet to the fire and make sure you go, and we'll charge you with weakness should you decline. And so they're quite happy to see the Democratic Party um, torn up in knots over this visit. Others will say, well, once she announced her visit, it would show weakness to not go and to change her plans. And so they're saying we're glad she went. Having said that, it would have been difficult for her to decide not to go and for the administration to, to tell her not to go. But she could have handled this in ways that would have been less provocative. But the grandstanding in Taiwan only made it more likely that the Chinese will raise the tensions, more likely that U.S.-China relations will escalate, and less likely the United States and China can cooperate on, on North Korea, on Iran, on climate change, on other issues that are important. To the extent so what, that U.S.-China... Yes. 
And what about the semiconductors aspect of this, that conversation? What do you think will come of that, and, and, and what was Pelosi's thinking there? Um, I don't think she was thinking very hard about legislation at this point. Uh, the legislation is quite helpful. The United States does need to have an autonomous semiconductor industry. And so the Biden uh, plan and the um, passage by the, by the Senate is very valuable in this one. Um, but her visit was simply to say that U.S. and Taiwan should cooperate in semiconductors. That's long U.S. policy. And so she's meeting with one of the largest multinational corporations in Taiwan. That's not unusual for any delegation. Um, and um, more of concern is her meeting and her op-ed and her um, grandstanding. That's a greater concern. Well, that's what is just so confusing. I mean, there are, you know, people are making inferences about the fact that her husband stole off uh, in a large number of stock and stands to profit from some of these political machinations. But the, the, the dots are not being connected specifically. You know, obviously, we're talking about the chips bill now because the COVID supply chain crisis really exposed the vulnerabilities and our ability to you know, make all of the things, computers, phones, high-tech, high, high tech, uh, everything that requires these, these chip technologies. People have kind of woken up and realized how vulnerable America is in many respects because we've offshored so much manufacturing. This is, this is central to all of this, but the, the, the pieces seem not to be connected with Pelosi's visit. How does Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in this factory affect the uh, support of legislation back home, the ability to get the funding to actually build the plants in Ohio that are kind of earmarked for this bill but not fully funded? I mean, it does seem to be largely in the realm of inference. You know, we're talking about all these things at once. This is the geopolitical context here. But we're still kind of thin on explanation for why Pelosi would choose to take this risk right now against the advice of the president of the United States and in the middle of um, what could erupt into a geopolitical conflict that's very similar in its posture to many folks to what's going on in Ukraine and causing so much trouble for the Biden administration there. I think we would be giving her too much credit to say that she saw her visit as instrumental in getting the CHIPS bill passed. It was pretty much a done deal, a question of timing, um, long before she had left. Um, the question you ask is, why is she going? And that is a critical question. Um, she has a safe seat. She's going to retire soon. She has no political calculations. This is a minimal, at best, contribution to U.S.-Taiwan relations. So one can only imagine that her real incentive is to establish her own credentials as a supporter for democracy. This may be a legacy issue. She wants to go down in history as a democracy supporter. But of course, mentioned earlier, actions have consequences. And it seems that, the, that her own personal objectives have gotten in the way of American foreign policy. I uh, was on a radio program yesterday, a California-based radio program, and the host speculated that perhaps she wants to shore up support among uh, Taiwanese, uh, people of Taiwanese origin who live in her district in case uh, she wants to pass the baton to Chelsea, or her, I'm sorry, not Chelsea Clinton, what was Nancy Pelosi's daughter's name? Christine. Christine, to Christine, so. All right, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. What's on your radar, Brianna? Well, Robbie, Andrew Yang's third-party effort, the Forward Party, is off to a lackluster start. But most people have misdiagnosed the why. Partisans from both establishment parties have lobbed predictable criticisms. 
Democrats in particular are worried about the forward party candidate's ability to siphon off Democratic votes in close elections, crying spoiler effect. How could you argue that if 40% of the country says, I can't see myself in a major party, that we shouldn't give that 40% another option? Or at least if one of the two major parties said, hey, why don't we go after the, that 40% that are, that are telling us they're unrepresented in our own party. If the major parties won't do it, I believe the forward party will. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. My only point here would be to say that um, uh, as long as the third option is viable, because in 2020, I will say the That's people right. that voted third party, they cast a ballot for Donald Trump. They did not cast a ballot, a viable ballot for anybody else yeah. other than President Trump. Hmm. Moreover, they're distrustful of a coalition that seems to be dominated by Republican politicians and is thin on ideological principles. The forward party's three ideological priorities are free people, thriving communities, and vibrant democracy. But while almost everyone can agree that recognizing freedom and individual choice is a good thing, some Americans see the right of, say, a woman to secure an abortion as free choice, while others don't. Some Americans see freedom in having unrestricted access to guns, while still others feel that to be free requires freedom from gun violence and therefore some regulation. Everyone wants a thriving, safe community, but some people believe that safety comes from funding already bloated police budgets, while others believe addressing poverty has a better chance at lowering crime. The forward party's framing obscures real ideological differences, but... To me, that's not a reason to dismiss the effort. After all, these contradictions exist even within the Democratic Party. As a leftist and former Democrat, I feel them acutely. For example, senior establishment Democrats Nancy Pelosi and James Clyburn recently stumped for Congressman Henry Cuellar in Texas, despite the fact that he does not support the right to choose and voted against the House assault weapons ban. New York Mayor Eric Adams is a former cop who sees the police as the primary tool to address homelessness, an approach progressives view as criminalizing poverty while avoiding the root problem and driving up the costs of mass incarceration. In the wake of George Floyd's murder by police officers and the subsequent protests, which were unprecedented in scale, Joe Biden was firm on his attitude toward police. We need to fund the police more. As a leftist, I am an expert on the tensions within the Democratic Party, and it is frustrating to see Andrew Yang, who has in the past demonstrated considerable talent in diagnosing the concerns of disaffected Americans, get this one wrong. He insists that the problem is the left-right divide. He promotes t-shirts advertising the idea that the way to progress is not left or right, but forward. But that's the same misdiagnosis that Democrats make. The problem isn't the extremes on the left and the right, as a recent Forward Party tweet announced. The real divide is top-down. Like corporate Democrats, the Forward Party has interpreted the widespread frustration with the two establishment parties as an interest in so-called moderate policies. The instinct to take this approach when knitting together a coalition is understandable, but it's wrong. The truth is that individual Americans hold a whole host of disparate political and cultural views that often fail to neatly align with one party or another. Independents aren't the platonic average of a Democrat and a Republican. 
They're, let's say, economic populists who feel left behind by changing cultural norms. Or Reagan Republicans spooked by the far right's open embrace of theocracy, obsessive focus on pronouns, and abandonment of deficit hawkery. They're union families who used to vote Democrat, but who have been disappointed by decades of bipartisan deals to ship jobs overseas. They're veterans, frustrated by the bipartisan consensus on supporting forever wars. They want legal weed and free speech. They're more Joe Rogan than Liz Cheney. If the forward party doesn't figure out how to knit together that coalition, it's dead on arrival. Lucky for them, there is a realistic path forward. The forward party members don't need to agree on everything, but they do need to agree on two basic principles. They need to be an anti-war party, and they need to make a commitment to never take corporate money. Now, the reason for the first prong is obvious. Anti-war sentiment is driving support for right-wing populist candidates and left candidates alike. It's what made heroes out of characters as diverse as Barbara Lee, Tulsi Gabbard, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mike Lee, and Bernie Sanders. Republican Mike Lee and independent Bernie Sanders famously collaborated on a bill to rein in executive powers rather, on matters of war and national security. Bernie and Rand Paul collaborated on the Yemen War Powers Resolution. Both the Bernie left and the far right are livid about billions going out the door to Ukraine while gas and food prices remain high at home. Being an anti-war party is a no-brainer, especially when you consider that so much of the hawkery in the two major parties is driven by the subject of my second prong, corporate lobbyists. The forward party must eschew corporate money. Democrats and Republicans aren't out of touch with the American people because they simply woke up one day and chose to be useless. It's worse than that. They're paid to be useless. Defense contractors contributed over $50 million to political campaigns in 2020 with a fairly even split between Republicans and Democrats. Raytheon gave over half a million dollars to Joe Biden's 2020 campaign alone. Lockheed Martin, over 440,000, over 700,000 from Boeing and over 400,000 from Northrop. These companies subsequently lobbied the administration to, for example, continue weapon, uh, to send weapons to Saudi Arabia, where they're used to commit atrocities against the Yemeni people. A bomb that obliterated a Yemeni school bus, killing more than 40 children, was later identified as being manufactured by Lockheed Martin. Almost no voters support this, and no voters benefit from this, but it happens anyway because, as I've explained repeatedly on this show, we don't live in a democracy. A 2014 study showed that there is no relationship between what the people want and what Congress delivers, and the reason why is corporate capture. So why would a new party that hopes to correct what is wrong with the two existing corporate parties court the same corporate funding base that ruined both Democrats and Republicans in the first place? There is always bipartisan support of war. Over two dozen Republican senators issued a statement yesterday in support of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. And similarly, there's always bipartisan support of a privatized healthcare system that commodifies your loved one's cancer diagnosis and offers you care only if you have money. Just like there's a bipartisan consensus against taxing the rich and breaking up the banks. Just like there's a bipartisan consensus to put more Americans in jail 
privatize Social Security, and ignore the student debt crisis. After all, how else would they find grist for the war profiteering machine if they couldn't lure your children into the army to pay for their school and healthcare? You wouldn't know what's wrong with America. This mentality is running it. Wealth, this is according to Oxfam, of the world's 85 richest people is equal to the three and a half billion poorest people. It's fantastic. And this is a great thing because it inspires everybody, gets the motivation to look up to the 1% and say, I want to become one of those people. I'm going to fight hard to get up to the top. This is fantastic news. And of course, I applaud it. <laughs> Do dreams of being a millionaire someday keep your belly full, your gas tank full? By contrast, Bernie Sanders attracted the respect of people like Joe Rogan and even some conservatives because they believe he's genuinely trying to solve problems and believes his solutions are the best for the people. Even those who disagree with his approach acknowledge this. As Rogan and his guest did last week, a subject I covered in a radar just last Wednesday. And the reason Bernie has earned that trust is because he's existed in Congress for decades without taking corporate money. His message is consistent and often out of step with the blob military consensus exactly because he does not take corporate PAC money. And despite that fact, he managed to out fundraise a crowded Democratic primary field. Again, precisely because voters understood that if they funded his campaign, he'd owe them, not Lockheed Martin. It seems obvious to me that independents want, well, <laughs> political independence. And you get that by being financially independent. According, however, to the big brains in centrist land, a land that only exists on network TV, all that matters is being middle. Take a listen to Bill Maher's take on the forward party. You could have a, like a sensible middle party, and it would then, what, what would happen is it would force the Democrats to go back to being the sensible middle party. And they would. This commentary made no sense. Over the weekend, I retweeted this clip and I asked Twitter to name a single capitulation Biden made to the left. In, in another part of that clip, uh, he, he claims that the real problem with the Democratic Party is that they've bent over backward and capitulated to the left's demands. That's why they aren't doing better in polls. And people could not do it. They couldn't name a single capitulation. In fact, people who tried named Biden's own campaign promises, promises which were popular, which got him elected, and which he chose to renege on. But those aren't capitulations. He's done nothing but thumb his nose at the left. People voted for him because he promised to do something, and now that he hasn't, the elite commentariat predictably blames the very group he's ignored. The truth is that Americans don't want the middle. 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. 68% want marijuana legalization. 90% want Medicare to negotiate drug prices. 71% want a higher minimum wage, including 72% of independents. 68% want a tax on ultra millionaires. Two-thirds of Americans want to expand Social Security, including Republicans by a two-to-one margin. Three-quarters of Americans want to break up the banks. And guess what? We have zero political parties running on that platform. Also, if you're waiting for millionaire talk show hosts to back these proposals, don't hold your breath. They might support pot legalization because that one helps them, but I promise you, just like corporate politicians, they aren't looking out for you. 
when it comes to politics, when you try to find the average voter, no one is there. And if that's difficult to understand, consider this. In the 1940s, the US Air Force couldn't figure out why their planes kept crashing. Although technology had advanced, birds kept falling out of the sky. On the worst day, 17 pilots crashed in a single day. They couldn't figure out why, that is until someone realized that the cockpits had been designed to fit the average pilot. Back in 1926, when the Army was designing the first cockpit, it took the measurements of hundreds of pilots and made a standardized cockpit. The problem was no single pilot actually matched the measurements of the average composite pilot. Out of over 4,000 pilots measured, zero of them had the dimensions of the average pilot. The lesson? Well, in the words of the young man who finally solved the puzzle of the crashing planes, the tendency to think in terms of the average man is a pitfall into which many persons blunder. Hopefully, the lesson here is obvious. Americans have a great many needs, and the way to form a coalition is to actually address them, not to speak in generalized platitudes like the forward party is currently doing. It's also not by trying to get people to forget their empty fridges and gas tanks, leaning on empty identity politics, and calling material economic concerns privileged, as some elite pundits are doing. Inflation, it's almost a privilege to care about inflation as your number one issue. Um, the same is true of gas prices or even the idea that it's the economy stupid. It's also wrong to do what the Republicans are doing, which is to blame everyone else for inadequate solutions while offering none of your own. I don't care about pronouns is not a policy to lower prices at the grocery store. Taxing price gougers and breaking up meat monopolies is. Criticizing the money going to Ukraine while people suffer at home is sort of empty if you don't support actually spending that money to help Americans. Banning books doesn't address the education crisis. Funding public colleges and vocational schools does. And hating woke culture is not a substitute for doing the bare minimum, like voting to help veterans exposed to burn pits. Look, criticizing Democrats is cool. I do it all the time. But doing so without offering solutions amounts to selling snake oil to Americans who desperately need real medicine. I want to root for the forward party. I think it's important to support third parties on principle, and I think it's important to have a well-funded effort to push ranked choice voting and secure ballot access for all types of third party campaigns. But if the forward party wants the trust of the public, if it wants to avoid becoming the third head of a corporate Cerberus, it must decline to suckle at the teeth that feeds the beast. And that's corporate money. So Robbie, I was very excited. I will show my cards at the idea of a forward party. I have been a third party supporter for a very long time. But it seems to me that the problems that the Bernie campaign and that movement diagnosed with the two major corporate parties has been completely ignored by the forward party. And they seem to think that saying things like, don't we all want to be together? Don't we love America? Don't we want to fight together? These kind of like broad platitudes, which sound very nice, are going to resolve the fundamental rot that's driving both of these parties. I suppose my disagreement with you here is that I don't think um, that kind of stuff might be a problem for the party. It might not. I don't know. 
it's just dwarfed by the larger problem that third parties face, which is the structural problem. In my view, that is the entire issue, really. And it's like talking about anything else is small compared to the issue that third parties face, which is that they, like, the system is literally designed to thwart them. It's the winner-take-all nature, unlike other countries where if a party has 5% or 10% or 20% of the vote, of the support in the election, in other countries, that means 5% or 10% or 20% of the representatives will be from that party. In our system, in a variety of ways, that is just not true. <laughs> Unless you have majority support, you get nothing. Right? You know, in each state, there are a couple states that do things differently. Um, until that problem is addressed, or, and also that that you know elections are substantially run by state legislatures that are run by Republicans and Democrats, and they have every possible obstacle to new parties getting on the ballot, counting signatures, paying the fees. Um, you, you have to have a certain threshold of the vote to qualify for public funding. So, like the third, the third parties have to get there before they could even be well, in the yeah. conversation. I mean, you're making the argument for why I think the forward party is so important. I, for example, voted Green in New York in mm -hmm. 2016 because I wanted to help the Green Party get to the 5% they needed to get federal matching funds. I felt like that was a much better use of my vote than voting for, say, Hillary Clinton, who I didn't support as a candidate, and, but also was running in a state that hadn't gone Republican in my lifetime. I, it's why I think it's so important to have the forward party when you have people like Matthew Ho in North Carolina, who I mentioned on a radar a week or two ago, uh, who the Democratic Party uh, really fought to keep off the ballot. He's had a recent victory, and it looks like he's going to be able to proceed. But all of the things that you describe, the obstacles that you describe, are exactly why I think we need to have a party like the forward party pushing for, say, ranked choice voting, which mm -hmm. cuts through a lot of the noise about the spoiler effect that you hear mostly from Democrats, mm -hmm. but from both parties. I'm sure you've heard oh, yeah, time absolutely to time as a libertarian. Yes, yes. And I, I wonder, Robbie, how you negotiate some of the um, barriers to third party success yourself as a libertarian who I presume from time to time votes for libertarian candidates. I vote exclusively for libertarian uh, party candidates uh, as long for as long as I can remember. Uh, I, I vote for them knowing that because of the structural issues, there's just very little chance. I, I wish it was otherwise. I think I mean, thir third parties are obligated to support some kind of reform to the system until there's a system reform. Perfect messaging, perfect candidates, would not make much of a difference um, until I this. Which, I, I I, if that sounds very that. depressing. I wish again. I wish that were not the case. But that's. I'm fairly convinced. So of we that. already know, for example, that there's been an upsurge in Green Party successful uh, election campaigns in states like New York. There are a number of successes on the local level that we've seen increasingly. We've seen people like Shama Sawant uh, and other kind of radical self-identified socialists have a lot of success in recent years. Also, we remember the wave of 2018, et cetera. Um, and so it seems to me that the idea of the forward party, and they tout themselves as being the best funded third party now in the country, they do have the resources to go after some of these structural issues. And I think that we should applaud, it, applaud that. I just wish that their funding came from the people that they are trying to serve because I am concerned that they're going to run into the same kinds of problems that the other two parties ran into. And I know that some people might think, well, they're not going to be the best funded third party if they issue uh, corporate dollars. But the reality is, I put that, that donation map up from 2020. People hated that. You know, People outside of the Bernie campaign hated that map because despite not taking those corporate dollars, Bernie managed to outraise what the 24, 25 other people in the Democratic primary field, everybody except maybe Michael Bloomberg, who could just reach into his own pocket. And, and that really inspired people to think, well, I don't even 
even know if this is going to work, but I know that he has no other obligations than to me. And if personally, my own perspective is that if the forward party took that kind of approach, I would be all in. I would be all in. So that's my pitch to, to Andrew Yang. <laughs> well, and I think we're going to have him back on the show soon. So we'll talk to him about some of these uh, questions of strategy and tactics. Fox News' parent company told employees this week that proof of vaccination is no longer required in order to enter office spaces, according to an internal memo obtained by the Daily Beast. The company had infamously imposed the measures in the summer of 2021. Last week, we learned that the NBA won't have a COVID vaccine mandate either. This comes after the saga last season with Brooklyn Nets star Kyrie Irving, who was only allowed to play road games after initially refusing the vaccine. So people, uh, with the Fox News thing, I think people were pointing this out in the uh, insistence that this was some kind of hypocrisy, given that many hosts on Fox were opposed to these mandates. I never really got why that was considered hypocritical, because it's not... It's a mandate. Right. The, the hosts are not in charge of the building, and right. the, so you can, you, know, you can have the view. Like, I could have the view. Like I, our, our, we didn't have that policy here, but we could have had that policy here. It could have been imposed on us, despite my own belief that having a mandate was wrong. So it's not... I, I didn't yeah, quite see the could, hypocrisy aspect of it. Right. The argument could be you actually oppose mandates because you were subjected to one and you were very unhappy about it. Right. So that's entirely consistent. Right. Um, but I do think it was more about the idea that the people who run Fox, you know, the, the big baddies, the, <laughs> the Roger Ailes of the world, et cetera, who are presumed uh, and often proven to have similar beliefs to the beliefs that are often discussed about on the programming, for them to back such a policy was inconsistent. Less of the host, but that Maybe the, it was imposed the on them, too, by, I mean, didn't New York, New York City had some kind of you had to show your vaccine card for a while uh, when last I was there, which was a little bit of a while ago. Yeah, you had to go into a, a, a restaurant or something. Mm-hmm. You had to show your vaccine like card. I actually, per- I, yeah, I think the last time I was in New York, it, w- it was the case that when you were there, you had to show a vaccine card, but then you didn't have to wear a mask when you like entered the, the door till you sat down, which which I prefer to D.C., where at the time you didn't have to show a vaccine card, but you did have to, like, wear a mask for the walk, which I I find so ridiculous. But then D.C. also implemented a vaccine mandate, so it was just the worst of all worlds. But um, but anyway, regardless of what cities and and companies and businesses were doing before, the reality is now we all know that being vaccinated is not is not a public health It's good for your health, especially if you're at an at-risk category, if you're an elderly American and so on and so forth. But that's your decision. It's not doing very much to contribute to tamping down the spread of the disease in general. So many people who who are vaccinated have gotten COVID some multiple times. Like it's, it's not... Uh, if it makes you, maybe it makes you less sick, maybe then less symptomatic or something like that. So you're less likely to spread it, but it's just, it's not... By and large, it's not we need to vaccinate other people so that I'm okay in the workplace, so I'm less likely to catch it. That's just not yeah, the case. They, they definitely oversold that point, and the reason was because that was the biggest inducement that they had to convince people to go ahead and get vaccinated. Even if you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for your community right. more broadly. The question that just I lies. have is, just well, lies. well, that's the question I have <laughs> is, it was very early on in the pandemic. Obviously, the vaccines were brand new. They didn't have time to get data when you come up with a rushed vaccine and and push it through the process quickly in order to address a global pandemic. So it was it a good faith 
belief that it would stop the spread more than it ultimately did? Or was it really just a coercive tactic to encourage people to go ahead and get the vaccine? I'm not sure that we'll ever really know that. It did, ho- it did hold up better against the, the initial strain, for at the, least for the first yeah. few months. The protection was pretty robust. Yeah. Then Delta hit. We started having yeah. breakthrough cases. I remember when I got my breakthrough case last July, right, as Delta mm-hmm. was starting. And I mean, like, oh, I'm, I'm one of those... Those very few, those lucky yeah. very few who are going to get breakthrough cases. And then, like, by the next month, like, oh, there's a lot of breakthrough cases. Then Omicron hit and it's like, well, it doesn't matter. Does yeah. not matter. You're going to get it. Yeah, so I do, I do think that there's – I don't think it's necessarily fair to charge, whether it's the NBA or Fox or any of these institutions who, you know, promulgated these policies with bad faith or to say that they were necessarily bad actors because we no. were all – one, it was more effective early on, and two, we were all kind of just trying to make it up as we went along. There are bad actors. It's the best. government health advisors and I get perhaps and I, and the pharmaceutical prefer, companies themselves. I much prefer a world where we erred toward caution, obviously outside of the world of, you know, mandates and people feeling literally coerced or losing their jobs and things. But I personally would have been happy to go ahead and say if they had been transparent assuming they knew and said, we're not sure exactly how much this prevents transmission, but there's a possibility it would be helpful. I would be happy to personally to take a hit. But I do think that now we're in this world where because there's been so much revision on a lot of these policies that were really articulated as certain and firm, Mm -hmm. you're going to get people questioning advice going forward, which is not good from a public health perspective. And they were, people were given a uh, sort of implicit and in some cases explicit promise that if you did get this vaccine, even if you don't, maybe you're younger and you're not particularly at risk, but if you do get it, we're going to, we're easing up restrictions. So you should do it as part of that effort to no longer have to have the lockdowns and school closures and mass everywhere. And then they went right back to recommending those things and so in some cases explicitly forcing them on people, even not at risk populations like school children, uh, which was part of the kind of just broken faith approach the government had. Well, luckily there are no lockdowns and the mask mandates are gone. So there's very little in the way uh, to complain about. We got to where we needed to be. And the question now I think a lot of people are thinking about is the the next, the next virus. They're not entirely gone though. There's some, I believe there are some school children uh, who will be returning to school this fall and they'll still have mass college campuses. Some of them will still. Well, yeah, of course, private you know, a lot yeah. of private institutions, they have their, you know, good old libertarian right to do what they want to do and enforce what they want to enforce. As I said in a recent radar, I would much prefer there be more of an emphasis on HVAC systems and getting ventilation in a lot of these places, especially since they've been shown to reduce the spread of COVID by about 41% as compared to some of the, uh, you know, bad mask, you, you know, use of masks mm-hmm. that aren't very effective, the basically flimsy paper ones that don't do much of anything at all. And the fact that young children aren't especially compliant. Um, if people really do have those kind of public health in- interests, I would like them to be doing those kind of investments. But those require more substantive investments than people individually going and making uh, making masks. And we've seen a lack of commitment to making it easier for people to comply if it costs money from the government and much more offshoring of responsibility on individuals. And now we're seeing the, the, ba- the backlash to that. Well, just last week, 50 GOP congressmen sent a letter to Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin in an attempt for the DOD to reconsider its vaccine mandate, citing the impact it will have on the National Guard if it's enforced. Up to 60,000 National Guardsmen and women, 11 percent of the reserves, they could be let go. Congressman Mike Waltz is leading that effort. Here he is discussing it on Fox News. And in this case, you have a vaccine that has now been shown not to stop the spread. 
that it's a personal health decision on what kind of symptoms you want to endure versus guaranteed to lose tens of thousands of soldiers you can't replace. Uh, and it, the Guard is on the front line of everything from hurricanes to going over to Ukraine and overseas deployments. We just can't afford it as a nation to take this kind of a blow. And I agree with what he's saying there. I think with the National Guard, it's an issue, the, the vaccine mandate, this is an issue of practicality rather than an issue of principle because principle, the, our military, our service people are forced to, uh, they have to give up certain liberties to be employees of the government to work for us and work to defend us. So in principle, I am not as opposed to that, this sort of thing. But practically speaking, I don't see any reason to force a National Guardsman who doesn't want to get the vaccine to get it. Uh, assuming that they're, I mean, if, if they really don't want it, it what is the, it's, it's not protecting other National Guards. Again, the public health part of it is not really a, a rationale. It's for their yeah. own, for their own health. The only way I would distinguish the, or one could distinguish a National Guard case from the broader public is that if they do get sick and have a longer course of COVID and have a more, um, disastrous run of things and have to be hospitalized, et cetera, that does one take them out for longer and you know could conceivably yield the same kind of uh, dip in the workforce that we're talking about if all 11% of people actually resigned, especially given these waves we've had that are very infectious, the close quarters people have to be in in these situations and all those kinds of things. And moreover, I'm not, you know, I don't know entirely how their health insurance is funded, but it does seem to me that there is a certain degree of investment in not having, you know, the state pay the cost of people who are getting sicker than they might ordinarily get. Now, I'm not saying that that should necessarily determine how you think about this one way or the other, but as a lawyer, that's how I would mm -hmm. distinguish the two cases if you were trying to make the case. But these have to be people, I mean, hopefully, I hope the people in the National Guard are physically fit and young and otherwise healthy and thus extremely unlikely to have a very negative COVID health outcome, in which case thing. I would not override I, their personal I, I do desire that, not to get vaccinated. I do think that sometimes the way that we talk about who is at risk and who isn't, it ignores a lot of invisible disabilities and vulnerabilities people have. A lot of people suffer from asthma. That puts you on the list. A lot of people, even if you don't look especially you know, un unfit, have diabetes or pre-diabetes. People have type 1 diabetes. A lot of people have any number of autoimmune disorders that put them at particular risk. And it is a little, you know, heart conditions, mitral valve prolapse, a lot of things that wouldn't take you out of the running for being in the National Guard but very much put you at risk. And when you look at the, the actual percentages of Americans who do fall into the high risk category, it's basically most people. And I'm not saying it's most people in the National Guard. But certainly but not in most people, people who are at risk of having a, a very negative COVID health outcome. I don't know. I, I, I really caution people with that because I still remember the early days of COVID where a lot of people who were young and healthy and people were very surprised. There were some tragic stories of a lot of you know, journalists and people who were very much on Twitter really shocked to find that their loved ones succumbed. And you know, as much as I think it's really valid to critique the CDC overreaches and kind of misinformation that have been promulgated over the past two years, I also don't want folks to lose sight of exactly how scary those early days were and how unpredictable the virus was, is. It's not just the flu. 
The Los Angeles City Council has voted to expand the city's anti-camping law to totally ban homeless encampments within 500 feet of schools and daycares. Council members approved the ordinance by an 11 to 3 vote, but not before proceedings were interrupted by protesters who shouted that the law is inhumane and accused the council of criminalizing homelessness. Activists were eventually dispersed by the Los Angeles police. After the vote, one council member told reporters, quote, the least I can do for my community is to clear the public right away so my constituents can send their kids to school. Joining us now to discuss the new ordinance is our rising panel. Alimia Lauren is a public defender with legal aid and a political commentator. And Denise Long is a business consultant and a contributor to Newsweek. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thanks. Morning. Uh, Alimia, I'll start with you. You know, what do you think of this? I mean, it's exactly what they said it is. It is criminalizing homelessness. Here are people that already don't have anywhere to stay and you want to take hundreds, hundreds of areas where they have to, to, to rest because they have no home, they have no housing and remove them from those areas. And additionally, you're not making any, any avenues to give them actual housing. Uh, they currently don't have enough shelters. They don't have enough beds. Apparently, the, the housing infrastructure as it stands isn't enough to house these people. And instead of doing something to expand housing, you know, you're taking away, taking away areas for them and the issue, I think, is even reflected in the comments that you said from the council member. He says, you know, he needs to clear this path away for his constituents. The problem is we talk about homeless people as though they don't fall under the purview of the legislators that are responsible for caring for the people in that city. They are. And I think that's reflected in one of the comments from the people that uh, support the law saying, you know, they... They need to clear the homeless people because students shouldn't have to see them. And while the, she's sympathetic to, to unhoused people, that she doesn't believe that students should be exposed to the same environments as them. And it leads me to believe what makes you think that homeless people are like less deserving of the same basic humanities and rights as everybody else? Why is a student, a student not supposed to be subjected to even seeing an environment, but someone who is unhoused is? I think it is deeply problematic of a greater issue we have in our society with how we see homeless people. And I think that leads to the lack of resources as you see provided for them. Denise, let's put that to you. You know, how do you weigh the obligation a city has to, let's say, the homeless population versus this idea of children not being even exposed to homelessness? If it's going to pass an ordinance like this, if a city is going to pass an ordinance like this, does it have an obligation to have some affirmative plan to help support the homeless community as well? Well, absolutely. I don't know how. So, yes, I think there's this element of the idea that this is a public nuisance to have walkways to essential facilities, which is what the law is about, 500 feet from those facilities, as well as walkways in general to access any facility for the public. It is a public nuisance, and in some ways it's a public health threat. Let's also recall the ways that um, hepatitis and other diseases like that had been um, running rampant because of urination on the street and homelessness being a part of that. But yes, the legislators, given how long California has really allowed, I will say, this issue to persist without adequate in infrastructure, without adequate public health approach to not only homelessness, but the underlying issues that feed into and are antecedent to someone becoming homeless. So it is 
appropriate, I believe, to have this ordinance within 500 feet of essential facilities. Now, the idea that children can't see it, I think, is kind of strange. I understand uh, in a way. And at the same time, it's a reality of our society. So what we need to be doing is teaching people and investigating and using research to have a better approach, a more research-informed approach of how to address this issue that they've allowed to fester for a generation or two. Well, we need to be fixing the problem, not shielding people from exactly. being able to see the problem exactly. exists, right? That doesn't make the, the problem go away. And, uh, you know, align me, what are the non, if, if, if a kind of um, legislative or criminalizing kind of framework is the wrong framework, what is the right framework to get people who are homeless off the streets? Because I think there's tremendous public frustration. I feel the frustration with the encampments and the piles of trash and the other things that are accumulating in these public spaces, uh, what, what can be done? What should be done? You know, we talk about homelessness as though it's this like magical problem that we just don't have any fix for and we throw up our hands. It's a very obvious answer, housing. People are homeless. We love to talk about, you know, large rising issues with homelessness in these big cities and talk about them divorced from the, the reasons that people end up homeless. It's not a coincidence that all these major cities that have some of the highest cost of living, not even just in the country, but in the world, have large homeless populations. People are on the street not because they choose to be. They're on the street because they don't have the resources to provide themselves with housing. And it's a problem, you know, the dehumanization of homeless people is very serious. And the way that we talk about the problems that homeless people are facing, and we talk about them as though they're the greatest issue to us. Oh, you know, we have to see the homeless people. We're exposed to hepatitis. We're exposed to, you know, this public health issues. They're in our walkways. When we read the primary focus we need to talk about is the entire groups of populations of people that are experiencing this. And remember the fact that most of us are just one paycheck away from being homeless ourselves. The average American is, in fact, in that situation. So the same way we're looking, we're looking down on homeless people. And we need to remember that could be any of us. And instead, we need to address a society that isn't giving adequate money to livable wages and housing and making that available. That's what the obvious issue is here. You have people sitting on the street because they don't have anywhere to go. So, you know, lower wages, uh, uh, lower lower cost of living and increased wages. Yeah, to your point, Eli, I mean, Finland is on track to completely eliminate homelessness by 2025, according to Fortune magazine, using a housing first strategy that places people experiencing long-term homelessness into communal or apartment housing as a first step in rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. You know, Denise, what do you think the barriers are to people having that kind of approach in the United States? We do have, at least before the pandemic, only about, I mean, it's a, it's a large number, but in terms of the scale of the problem, 500,000 homeless people, Bernie Sanders, as part of his, of his campaign, committed to end homelessness. I mean, compared to a lot of other issues where you have millions and millions of people in poverty experiencing food insecurity, those kinds of things, it seems like a relatively small cohort to uh, start to address their issues. What are the barriers, do you think, to uh, politicians actually committing to doing what Finland is doing? Well, uh, two things. I think there are more than 500,000 homeless people. I mean, LA County has 66,000 uh, themselves. So I think part of the barrier is the idea that homelessness and the way we talk about it makes it sort of this thing that exists and we don't know how to, uh, we don't seem to know how to frame the issue in order to be able to address it both in a humane way, but also in a strategic way, because it's both and. We cannot have the issues that we have from the health standpoint and the obstruction of public spaces standpoint, but we also can't write off the people in our country in a way that sort of throws them to the side or heaven forbid, puts them on 
on an island by themselves, so to speak. Um, so that's part of the issue. Uh, I also think what we need to do is take a census of our homeless population. And when I say that, I'm not just talking about the numbers. I'm also talking about the various reasons that people are homeless. There are some people who uh, would probably prefer to just be left alone. There are some significant mental health concerns that we know from the research and studies that have been done with the homeless population, such as schizophrenia and the like. There are also people who are experiencing significant trauma. Those are those adverse childhood experiences and those other things that happen in someone's life that overwhelms their ability to cope with daily life. And to the point of my co-panelist here, there are people who've just lost their jobs for various reasons, including some reasons that could be traumatic, and they find themselves without family support or a social safety net around them, social safety net around them, in order to keep them from being homeless. So I think we need to have the conversation in a more robust way and look at the and take a true public health approach to both the antecedents to homelessness and respond to those antecedents as well as to homelessness itself. I think it can also be frustrating when you see, a, for instance, a northern European nation successfully mm -hmm. deal with a problem. We say, well, why can't the entire United States deal with it? I mean, Finland has five, it's the, has the population of New York City, less the population than New York mm -hmm. City. So it should be compared to a single city in the United States. And some cities in our country can fix homeless problems, but it like, it, it, the whole country is a bigger deal well, than that. But that's part of the uh, issue, that homelessness is concentrated. I'm sorry, go ahead, Alimi. No, 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 Brie, go, go, go. That, that homelessness is concentrated in these urban areas, particularly where housing costs are very high. And you can mm -hmm. say that maybe the scale of Finland is on the scale of a city or a state, but there are cities, no city or state in America has eliminated homelessness either. I take your point, Denise, about homelessness the number perhaps being larger, most certainly being larger post-pandemic, but the number was mm -hmm. only 500,000, at least before the pandemic, when the context, when we're talking about it in the context of the Bernie campaign. And I do think it is an indictment that given that kind of reasonable cohort of people, and to your point, Denise, the diversity of that population, a lot of people, homelessness looks different. It's a lot of children who are homeless people, are homeless for short periods of time living in their car. It's not always the kind of street living situation that we imagine. But that despite all of that diversity, despite the mental health issues, despite all of the different things that could start chipping away at this puzzle, we've seen very little political appetite for doing so. And I think the reason for that is the lack of political agency and voting power that comes from these, this group. It's much more powerful to stigmatize them than to support them. Um, I, I'll and, give you the last word, Alayami. You know, I think it's um, it's an important thing to remember that all the anti uh, the antecedents that we've discussed are also a reflection of where we put our money and our resources in and of itself, right? We're saying we have people uh, homeless not because just because they've lost their jobs and they don't have the money to afford housing, but also because of mental health resources and all the additional things that impact homeless populations and the American people. And that's because we have a society that's not putting its money there. So in the same reflection, yes, there are places that have initially from the jump, they had much lower uh, uh, homeless populations. But we need to reflect on the reason why they had much lower homeless populations in the first place, because they were much better addressing these social ills than America is. So it's a compounded problem that, you know, America has, has to address head on. Well, if I could add one thing really Go ahead. quickly. I would just say what's really important to note is there's an infrastructure that's built up around serving the homeless population, which is the case with a lot of not-for-profit sort of work. What we need to be focused on, to Bree's point about advocacy, is we need to focus on ending the need for those types of organizations by taking this strategic approach to the small cohort that you have absolutely mentioned, because we know how to address many of these underlying issues, so we need to get busy at doing that. Well, I mean, Denise, Indeed, thank you it. so much for joining us. We got to go, but uh, we'll have you back soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.
On Monday, the ACLU of Massachusetts and North Carolina filed an amicus brief with the Supreme Court calling to protect universities' ability to consider race in their admissions, admission processes. The ACLU is arguing that, quote, colleges have an important interest in student body diversity that furthers the values of academic freedom and equal protection. For this reason, the Supreme Court should uphold the ability of institutions of higher education to consider race in a holistic review during the admissions process. The brief was filed in two cases led by anti-affirmative action organizations, Students for Fair Admissions. I think we're going we're gonna to fight over this one. Why is that? Uh, well, I strongly disagree with the ACLU's take on this. I think if you're going to support equality and fairness, you cannot support what Harvard inarguably did, which is manifest discrimination against its Asian applicants. Uh, and in fact, also, even if you ultimately end up su supporting the uh, 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 race-based admissions process, I think anyone would be shocked and appalled at the way Harvard admissions officers actually described their Asian applicants mm -hmm. in private meetings. Um, they took the racist view that Asian applicants had less interesting personalities, essentially. That comes through in the documents. It was really some shocking and offensive stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure why you think I'd agree. I uh, feel very strongly about it. I recall being part of many an interview process when I was an attorney where I heard people at my law firms kind of debrief about candidates. And I heard a lot of the language, not quite as viscerally as some of the Harvard transcripts come off, but I heard language that was very similar about how I don't think this person is going to be a good fit. I don't think this person would is as interesting. I don't think this person would gel culturally with the firm. And mm. my feeling was often that it had a lot to do with the person's racial makeup, and that oftentimes that they were an Asian American. Now, I, that's anecdotal evidence, but I certainly do think that's the case. Now, what I think is interesting about this is the way that this, these kinds of stories are often framed, because the greatest beneficiary of keeping Asian American kids at lower admissions rates is, in fact, white students. And we've seen this in a lot of the UC systems that have gotten rid of these affirmative action programs. When you don't have affirmative action for these you know, white kids to keep the balance of the population about the same as what the balance of the local or national population is, you do get to see campuses that are overwhelmingly disproportionately you know, 30% or more Asian. And that is something that a lot of white parents have you know, pushed back on. Now, broadly, the question of whether one should consider race is, I think, a different thing than the question of whether it should be deployed in these discriminatory ways. Because for a long time, this idea of a completely race-neutral process has been used to allied discrimination on the basis of race, right? So if I say you can't consider race, but I'm walking around ignoring candidates let's say Asian American candidates on the basis of race, there's a way that you can make that bad action, the racist action, transparent because you're not even allowed to talk about or think about race at all. So I think we have to be a little bit careful with this. But to the extent that a lot of these diversity initiatives are angling to get underrepresented groups access to colleges, I think there's a couple of things. One, you need to actually get at the root of the problem and correct the mass um, uh, housing and school segregation that exists in this country that has never been reformed post-Brown um, and have actual equal educational opportunities for everybody before they get to college. I think we need to de-emphasize the um, competitiveness of the college program and have more public universities and really treat college as the stepping stone to the rest of your life as opposed to this um, kind of elite tier that causes people who are very wealthy, like Aunt Becky from Full House, to commit fraud, mm -hmm. fraud and go to jail because she cares so much about her kid going to a good school, even though it's not really about her 
financial Well, the leg I find the legacy support. admissions process just as offensive as the race-based admissions process. Right. Well, that's also, I was going to say, 36% of Harvard are legacy admissions. Another 10% are academic admits. And it is frustrating, again, when you're looking at the relatively small percentage of minorities that are attending these schools for the focus to be so much on that. But to the extent that you do want to have underrepresented groups there, I think you should just talk about actual um, oppression that people have faced and use that as a metric instead, of, metric instead of using race as a proxy. And that will get a lot of lower income kids from a lot of different backgrounds, including low income and working class white kids who don't have a shot at these schools represented in the halls of power. And we'll get uh, fewer of these um, you know, elite Supreme Court justices and others that are so out of touch. The, uh, an interesting thing about race-based college admissions that I think a lot of people don't quite grasp is the Supreme Court actually in its decisions, in uh, one of them was the University of Michigan law school case, mm -hmm. uh, Gratz and versus Bollinger, and Gratz, the Gratz and Gretter decisions from the 90s. This, it's the Supreme Court who gave us this current paradigm because they said that you couldn't use race-based admissions to um, to remedy historical inequities. That was not a proper use of mm -hmm. race-based admissions. They said, but you could, because diversity is so important, you could use race as one factor among many to make the campus diverse enough. The Supreme Court said that. The problem with that is it's dumb, and I think most people understand that making up for some past historical injustice was a better argument yeah. to preference race-based admissions to a specific group than this very nebulous diversity argument, which starts to break down when you think about, well, but this is, we're just doing skin color diversity. What if, what if, what if people are not diverse in terms of their views, right? We're not really trying to foster ideological diversity. We're not trying to, all of these other kinds of things we're, you know, we're producing, to the extent that elite college campuses are manufacturing a kind of sort of elite lifestyle style and elite culture, there's not a lot of diversity there. Yeah. So it, it was a very, uh, so I think everybody understands that this is stupid and that the, now I, I would have, opposed doing race-based admissions for either reason, but I can concede that the better reason was certainly like, well, because of U.S. policies, we've treated African-American Americans worse than other groups, and to remedy that, they should have had some advantage. It, that's a, it's just a better argument than the yeah. weird diversity nonsense that I is too. Now, I don't, I mean, I don't know that I would characterize the diversity initiative in quite the same way, but I really do take the point that there's different kinds of diversity that do make college campuses in every environment better learning environments, but race is just a poor proxy for a lot of those things. And what ends up happening is you say you want a diverse campus, so you go looking for black people, but you're not looking for poor and working class black people on the whole because of the admission standards, right? And obviously people who don't have access to private SET tutors and parents who have gone through the process and can shepherd them through the process don't succeed as well by those kinds of academic metrics. So what ends up happening? You shop around for people like me, people who are middle class mm -hmm. and upper middle class and already were going to have a perfectly fine time getting into college because I did go to a good private school and have SAT tutoring and hit the metrics already. And so that you can fill the 10% of your class with folks like me without worrying about people like my family members or broader community who haven't had those kinds of advantages. And it really, I agree, I agree. it would be much better if you're going to try to do the racial uplift thing or the, um, uh, you know, addressing past harms 
to, to pick at that, those people. Of course, then you have these conversations about can they meet the academic standards of the institutions, which is why we get back to this initial issue of we just need to resolve the underlying inequality instead of making and up what, for it on the what back What Harvard end. loves to find, what emerged again from, this, uh, from the, pre, the previous trial, which was so interesting in, in the, the ways the admissions people thought about their applicants, they're obsessed with this idea of something called sparse country. They love to find someone from a, a rural county yes. who who know what Harvard hasn't taken anyone yes. or very few people from that county, and they find like a diamond in the rough. Mm-hmm. You know, someone who who drove a tractor. I know, like parents drove a tractor. Manhattan, Kansas. Like my best friends from Utah. <laughs> like, right. all, they all love to find things. that yeah. person. But what's not? But then they're. If there's someone with the who on paper has the exact same test scores yeah. and is equally impressive, but and is Asian or or black or any other race in in a in from in New York area, City, from Boston, hard. from Chicago. Yeah. Well, we get plenty of those applicants. Right. They care more about the person from the rural county, even if even if their their qualifications are identical. Or actually, in fact, even if the qualifications of the rural the sparse country person are are oh, actually worse, are not nearly as good. Yes. And that is. Not fair. Yes. It's and, just and again, not fair. It's not, I don't want to like, you know, both sides are this, but it is a little frustrating. It's not that I disagree with the critique of the affirmative action policy, but it is frustrating when all of that is going on. Mm-hmm. People from rural, disproportionately white areas are being um, boosted. You have these legacy admins, you have athletes, you have all of these things that are going on. And there is a way that this gets politicized, I think, in a way that doesn't actually help the working class people who are being shut out of one of the only avenues to ratchet yourself into another class bracket. Again, I would prefer there to be other avenues, but just squarely talking about this. And I have, I have friends who are, let's say, you know, Asian American men from a metropolitan area like New York who went to, who tested into one of these good magnet schools like Stuyvesant in New York that have a ton of Asian students because they are test-based, it's a test-based admissions program and who were not as successful in the college market because they were perceived to be just like every other Asian kid despite actually having a working class background, despite having parents who were postal workers, first generation and having a really interesting story. And so I really am very sensitive to the flattening effect of some of these policies and think there's a lot of room for reform. What I only, the only opposition to them I have, to some of these conversations I have, is that they do seem to be weaponized at times by folks who want to to use them to pretend that the real racism, um, the real prejudice and the real bias is against, you know, white middle class kids. When there are ways that the system sometimes really does advantage white middle class kids if you are, for example, from Manhattan, Texas. The the system is disadvantaging substantially Asian uh, applicants, and I'll be interested to see what the Supreme Court decides. I can imagine we're going to say goodbye to (laughs) race-based admissions very soon based on the recent trajectory of of Supreme Court decisions, and uh, I will not miss it personally. So... Whoopi Goldberg on The View said yesterday that student loan debt needs to be forgiven because older borrowers are suffering with high balances that they can't pay back. Let's take a listen. Betty Ann enrolled at NYU's law school. She borrowed $29,000 in federal loans. She now owes over $229,000. She is 91. She sold her family furniture to make loan payments, wonders if without the debt she could have stayed in a home she once owned. Listen, 
These are the debts you need to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. Because people who are in their 70s and 80s may not be making the same money they made in their 50s and yeah. 60s. You need to forgive this. Yeah. You need to forgive this. This is ridiculous. So obviously I agree with Ruby Goldberg. I'm a little frustrated that she seems not to have an appetite for policies unless they affect her literal specific cohort. So what really, you know, sparked her passion here and her desire to finally pay attention to this student loan debt conversation that has been going on for a really long time is this article in uh, The New Yorker about how the largest growing population of student debtors is seniors. You have an increasing number of seniors who have their social security checks garnished to pay their student debt. Um, from the article, of the 45 million Americans who hold student debt, one in five are over 50 years old. And between 2004 and 2018, student loan balances uh, for borrowers over 50 increased by 512%. So what you're seeing is an exacerbation of what's happening across the board, which is that people have huge loan balances, sure, but it's the interest that's really causing them to balloon if you fall behind on payments. And when you are older and when your uh, opportunities for financial gain narrow, especially as you go into retirement, it becomes an enormous albatross around your neck that unlike other forms of debt is not dischargeable through bankruptcy. Are these people who have just been trying to repay this debt for 30 years or is it Americans who went to college much later in life. Do you it's, know that? It's both. It's both. It's both. So, for example, I remember a point in time, around the time I was going to college, my mother disclosed to me that she was just going to pay the minimum until she died. Like, that, that was the best plan, like, financially. Because at a certain point, when you have an 8% interest rate, very, very quickly, $30,000 of debt can become $300,000 of debt. And they are there are programs where they say to you, okay, you lost your job, you have a low-paying job, go ahead and defer your loans without really often explaining to borrowers how a deferment of a year, and this happened to me, a one-year def deferral after law school added a $10,000 in interest to my loan right off the bat at age 25. And so you can imagine what happens. I was in a lucky position to have good legal jobs that were, I've always been able to pay back my debt. But people who aren't making six-figure salaries and able to keep up with the hundreds or thousands, sometimes thousands of dollars in monthly payments, very quickly fall behind. And I have many, many friends. I know many, many people who started out with the average, you know, $200,000 in debt from law school, who now have $500,000 of debt, and one friend who even has almost a million dollars in debt. Because of the interest. Because of the interest. Seems like a bad financial plan for any individual person to take out these loans. Well, they have to question the government's choice to go ahead and give the. I do question the judge. The government should not do this. I more than question. I yeah. disagree with. We should not do this and, anymore. And, also question and then we should make them dischargeable in bankruptcy. Yeah, I and, agree. And with that's that you know Joe Biden fought for that not to be the case. It's a very coercive system where you're telling. Americans, as we told them for decades, that the way forward was to get this education. Everybody, there's a revisionist history that's going up right now with some boobers who are opposed to student debt uh, cancellation. But we were told explicitly and repeatedly, you have to go to college, you have yeah, to go to college. No, now they're all saying, oh, but you shouldn't have gone to college. No, it was a part of the social contract that we were going to go to college and you were going to be able to get middle class jobs off of it. But it was a Ponzi scheme for most people. If everybody, go, if everybody goes to college, that 
cancels out the benefit because you have to get it above. So, well, like, I have a college degree benefit. and you don't, so I'm more qualified, or I'm gonna, I'm more likely to get this position, even if it doesn't strictly require yeah, a college if, degree. If everyone does that, well, then there's just a new hoop. Well, now it's if you have a graduate degree. Well, why are we if, doing this endless credentialing that is hoop if you jumping think the point thing? of college is purely credentialism. The ostensible point of college should be to prepare you for the kind of jobs that exist in the workforce that do require a college degree, that require a higher level of you know reading analytical skills and technical expertise for which people are trained. That's part of why we do have issues um, sourcing people to run the semi semiconductor factories, for example, that we're trying to build and compete with places like Taiwan. You do need a well-educated populace. We bring those people in, and then we send them back because of our ridiculous immigration policies, right, right. which so don't we, make any sense. We're sending the people who know how to make semiconductors because we won't let them, after they, they get a college visa, they come here. And then that expires and they go back. Yeah, so and then we, we wonder why our enemies are getting stronger than we are. Right. So we do need to invest in the American public. And it's not just about college shouldn't be about competing with other people. It should be about like having an educated workforce. That's not what's happening. And this interest point, I just really want to emphasize, if you the government sets these interest rates, then the government decides that they want to incentivize people to say buy a home. And they have drastically lower interest rates than people who take out student loan debt. So whereas you're paying, what, 3% on your mortgage or whatever, those people who have student debt are paying much higher rates and their loans are growing when they can't keep up with those loans and they don't have an asset to rely on the same way that you do when you have a house. Moreover, other parts of our tax policy really uh, um, um, hurt student debtors. For example, the fact that you can discharge, it used to be the full value of a million dollar home and interest on your taxes in a way that you could not, you could do only up a maximum of $2,000 and only if you earned but less than $60,000. The thinking there, though, is that they can, the house can be confiscated from you if you're not making payments on it. They can't, they can't take back no, your, that's, uh, your that's, degree that's that actually, you will always have no matter what. So that's the difference. That's, that's, that's a reason not to give the loan in the first instance. Well, I, we, not, we shouldn't give the loan in the first place, the, the but interest that's the rate, difference. If, if the government really believes it should guarantee these loans because they believe the investment in the American people is worth it, then they should go ahead and guarantee the loans. Or better, not issue these loans, create a free public college system and actually educate kids in the way that you want to educate them to join the workforce and get rid of this Aunt Becky situation where you have millionaires defrauding schools in order to get them in because they just want a feather in their cap, not because they actually want them to have good prospects in the job market. Right. In, in those cases, in the Aunt Becky case, it's really just wanting, I think just wanting to, they have, they have so much money. Yeah. It's procedure, like a, a, the fun experience for your, your little darling, because the, when they're comparing the schools that they cheated to get into and like We're what not, the next school down, yeah. it's, it's not, a, not a huge it's difference. Not, it's not a difference. Um, I mean, this is true in general. Like the Harvard is a great school, but the educational, uh, what you get there is not like a trillion times better than your next level down college. It is on paper, the prestige, the reputation, well, the prestige. The, thing. the there actual is real educational, value in reputation. it's not, yeah, that's all it is. With, with the Aunt Becky situation, I would argue that there's not as much in the edu the edu the reputational benefit of, say, you know, uh, you know, Rutgers versus I'm just Syracuse. saying this because I went to a large state school and you right. went to Harvard, so of course I would say <laughs> no, that it's not that much better. No, but I'm saying the, the educational, the, the what you get out of the marketplace and your reputation between like a Rutgers and a Syracuse is not as significant as a Syracuse versus a Harvard, I would say. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point, you have to ask yourself, is it worth paying all that money to go to the private school versus the state school? Is it worth it? But I do think 
regretfully, I don't think this is a good thing, there is an enormous amount of benefit that is given to you when you do go to these elite Ivy League schools, and it's especially true when you're going to law schools and professional schools where the top 14 has a dramatically different mm -hmm. effect on your ability to participate in the corporate law marketplace than going to other kinds of schools. And I make people, and this recommendation to people as they're asking me, should I go to law school? Should I pay for law school? I'm like, depends kind of on which one. No. And that's a terrible world. I would say no. <laughs> it's a terrible world Let's to be Let's just be honest, in. people. No, don't do it. Yeah. Don't take yeah. out a lot of money to go to a better, fancier, more expensive yeah. college. You will regret it. You will, nine right. times out of 10, you will regret it. But I, don't but do I do it. think that, you know, to Whoopi's point, there are a lot of older people who are feeling this really hard. Mm -hmm. And those people are consistent voters. And there needs to not be this polarization, this, this stigmatization of who is going to be affected by student debt. We keep pretending that when we say millennial, we mean children. I'm almost 40. <laughs> the millennials are old. And it's not just millennials. Again, one in every five people with student debt is over 50 years old. And that number is only going to get bigger over time. So we got to do something about this crisis one way or the other. This millennial is going to be a year older very soon. <laughs> Don't like the prospect. Parents of children killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting have testified that Alex Jones made their lives hell by spreading lies about the 2013 massacre and subjecting them to relentless harassment, with one parent telling court, uh, the courtroom, quote, my life has been threatened. I fear for my life. I fear for my safety and my family's safety and their life. Jones refused to face the bereaved father of six-year-old Jesse Lewis and left the courtroom during his testimony yesterday. Only two later smear him as a pawn and possibly on the spectrum during an episode of InfoWars. Jones didn't stop there, also telling viewers, quote, they all act demonically possessed, the judge, the lawyers, it's surreal to be around them, makes you feel sorry for them because these people are committed to occult ideology of the new world order. So I haven't been following this trial particularly closely. Um, Alex Jones is back in the news. We've discussed that documentary, uh, that interview that I believe Glenn Greenwald did with him. Um, my sense of his strategy in this trial, to the extent he has one, is to try to minimize how much of his show was dedicated to talking about the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories and basically say, oh, no, I do so much talking about uh, other issues, this was a very small part, whereas the other side, the, vic the families of the victims are, you know, trying to say, it doesn't matter how little you talked about it in comparison to anything else, what you said was a lot, was lies, right. and has had really harmful impact on us. Now, I, you know, as someone, you like me, are very online people and get a lot of criticism and get a lot of um, nasty um, behavior directed at us. I've never had anyone visit my residence. I'm very thankful for that. Um, but, you know, we get nasty stuff. So I understand the tendency not to want to blame a third party for what someone inspired by them does. Really, the underlying question, though, this is a, this is a libel trial. Did he say, you know, things that were maliciously, obviously false, known to him to be false against people who are, you know, depending on whether they count as public figures. And the answer there is pretty clearly yes. Um, you know, I think everyone recognizes, Alex Jones is probably the most universally recognized figure as the bridge too far guy. The guy who is, uh, who can't be platformed because he's saying things that, that, that uh, bring liability on whoever's platforming them because they violate uh, li uh, libel, defamation, et cetera. 
Yeah. I, I do think that he's going um, for a, ah, I'm just kind of asked, I was asking questions approach. Right. And, you know, there, people had questions. And some of the pushback I've seen is that folks are like, well, folks only thought there were questions because you were seeding the atmosphere. He's also clearly not just asking questions. He knows what he, he's, I, I am convinced that he's a performance artist, that he knows the things that he's saying are not true, that this is a performance um, he, see, he breaks character now and then. Every time he will laugh at things he has himself has said, he, like he's in on it to enough of a degree, whereas it's a kind of, like it's a kind of performance. It, it's, it's roped in. I don't know how many people he has still watching him, but it's not sincere. Right. And that to the extent that there is ambiguity, he very purposefully created it. And when you see him go from a trial like this and then pivot right back to his show and continue to double down on these kinds of remarks, you know, it doesn't inspire a lot of sympathy. And we live in a world now, I know jurors are instructed not to look at this, that, and the other, but it is a really interesting strategic choice of, that he's making. But, you know, he's not exactly always the most strategic uh, or predictable fella. Well, he also claimed on the stand yesterday, Jones did, that his conspiratorial coverage of Sandy Hook was purely in pursuit of journalistic truth. Let's watch that. Never intentionally tried to hurt you. I never even said your name until this case came to court. Uh, I didn't even really know who you were until a couple years ago when all this started up. The internet had a lot of questions. I had questions. And over that six, seven year period before I got sued, or six year period, it, it's clear you can see the whole progression of us, the few times we covered it, trying to actually find out what happened. Yeah, there's that, you know, I was just trying to get to the bottom of questions things. I mean, there is this this broader question of why it is that this accusation that folks are crisis actors or somehow disingenuous when something really bad and tragic happens is such a recurring theme out of some quarters of the conservative movement. It does seem like there are some actions which are so bad and which cast such skepticism on the fidelity to certain kinds of policies, whether it is, you know, in opposition to restrictions on certain kinds of weapons that cause the most harm um, or, you know, other kind of things that reflect poorly on some parts of the more extreme Republican agenda that the only response from the party is this must not have happened and must have been fake. Well, you can't. The reason you can't dismiss this, these kinds of things entirely is that some conspiracies end up being true and that it is the case that, uh, for instance, law enforcement engage, does engage in entrapment. And uh, I've talked on the show about, you know, the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot is actually a really great sure, recent but example of how it w was substantially uh, organized actually by the FBI itself. This is Sandy Hook. We're talking no, right, about right. Sandy Hook. Right. There's nothing to and, what and he's saying about Sandy choice, Hook. But, you know, to, to focus well, right. on Sandy Hook, because I do think right. it was a moment that was largely indefensible. I don't know how you can look at all those dead children and in the same breath say, okay, but this but. is justified. It's justifiable to have these kinds of weapons when we see that they are routinely connected to these kinds of events. I don't know. People still think this is, you know, people can and do say this is very terrible, but I still should have a right to my you know, AR-15. And that's a view that you can hold, but I think the, the kind of, the fact that some folks are pushed to this extreme, to lying about it, it exposes the kind of moral uncertainty of people who are in the position of making that argument. Asking questions is not a bad impulse, but you should ask questions thoughtfully with some reflection on what the question means and what the implications of it, with some evidence or suspicion you have, some expertise you have to bring to that. And that's what 
Alex Jones doesn't have. He doesn't like when 90 or 95 percent of the things you say are easily disproven wrong in service of like selling snake oil, whatever it is. You, you should not have the credibility then to ask provocative questions. Like you're not the right person to find out, oh, is this actually one of those cases where there is more going on? Is this one of those cases where law enforcement more, knows more than they're telling us, yeah, where says, the government's got something wrong? That yeah. is not a bad impulse to bring to a yeah. circumstance, but you should, it should be someone with a track record of correctly identifying those things, doing it, and that's not what, Alex Jones yeah. does not have that. He, he and that's says, what I would challenge his, the people who are still his fans to think about. I'm not, I'm not saying we should not ask questions or that we should always believe the, the state narrative or the media narrative. We don't do that on, on this show. We question lots of things on foreign policy and COVID especially that our mainstream narratives are part of the government's preferred narrative. But I, we do that, I, I think and hope, with a track record of getting it right more often than yeah. we get it wrong, whereas Alex Jones always gets it wrong. Well, he's saying there in that testimony that he's never heard of the name of one of the parents of the victims. You know, he doesn't even know who this person is. And it suggests to me, if you were a journalist, that you could have very easily called those people up, had them on your show, if you really did have uncertainty about whether or not their children was really... Uh, their child was really brutally murdered. And I think that that testimony right there exposes the extent to which he did not have that journalistic instinct at all. He was going for a very different kind of spectacle. Yeah. So. Yesterday was primary day for certain Republican races, Arizona, Missouri, uh, Michigan. And here with us to break it all down is The Hill's political reporter, Julia Manchester. Hello, Julia. Hello, thank you for having me. Yep, uh, we absolutely wanted you on to discuss these fascinating results. So I'm seeing uh, in Arizona, uh, Blake Masters won, and uh, Carrie Lake looks likely to win ahead, uh, but it's not for sure. Can you update us? Yeah, yeah. So it looks like Carrie Lake is def definitely has the lead, and it doesn't seem like she's going to give up that lead. And obviously, you have Blake Masters winning, but also conservative election denier uh, Mark Fincham winning the Republican nominee for Secretary of State. And then we know that Senator David Farnsworth was able to oust um, Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. So really, a win for a lot of Trump's endorsed candidates in Arizona, but a lot of these candidates also happen to be election deniers and it's really unclear how that will play out going into a general election in Arizona which is such a purple state I mean Arizona has produced uh, politicians like John McCain Kirsten Cinema, Mark Kelly these aren't people that have necessarily run, ran to the left or the right they're relatively moderate when it comes to campaigning so I'm curious to see if President Trump's endorsed candidates curtail their messaging to maybe focusing on the mm -hmm. national environment instead of an election that happened two years ago. We'll have to see. We know that there are some Democrats who were trying to boost a lot of these candidates um, because they thought they could be uh, easier to take on in the general election. But, you know, that could prove to be a risky strategy. So right. uh, I'll be talking to sources about this today to see what they think. But certainly a fascinating general election scenario. Coming yeah, spe out speaking of that, that did come to pass in Michigan with uh, Representative Peter Meyer, who's one of the Republican House members who voted to impeach Donald Trump, has faced this very tough primary challenge from uh, uh, John Gibbs. 
uh, who is endorsed by Trump and then received, as I've talked about, we've talked about on the show twice now, received a campaign contribution essentially from the DCCC, this advertisement trying to, you know, make Republican voters think that this is the Trump, uh, this is the more conservative candidate. And it it worked. Peter Meyer uh, is now uh, projected to have lost that race. So the uh, so then the Democratic theory being that uh, Gibbs will be easier to defeat in the general election in this district that is now more Democratic leaning than it was uh, when Peter Meyer initially uh, initially won. So we're going to have a we're going to have a test of that strategy because the Gibbs could could absolutely still win, and uh, then Democrats will have merely contributed to an effort to actually elect a, a far more far right candidate and a candidate who has thinks that the election was uh, in some sense stolen. Yeah, absolutely. It's a fascinating dynamic. And look, I think it's a risky strategy on their part. And I think a lot of it depends on the messaging that a lot of these Republican candidates go off of. If these Republican candidates who have spent the primary talking about the presidential election that happened two years ago, and they ignore making this a, a referendum on the Biden administration itself, it's going to be so easy for Democrats to say, look, I'm going to be the lawmaker or the politician who's going to help you uh, tackle the issues of inflation or higher crime or the situation at the southern border. It's going to be so easy for Democrats to focus on those issues because the Republican candidates may not be focusing on those issues. However, if the Republican candidates maybe pivot their messaging towards talking more about the economy or more about the present day versus an event that happened two years ago, um, you know, that could play in their favor considering the national environment appears to be in favor of Republicans. We'll have to see, but a lot of establishment Republican figures like Doug Ducey, like former Vice President Mike Pence, I imagine are very concerned this morning because they're concerned that these Republican nominees now aren't focusing on the right messaging. Julia, another big story out of last night came out of Kansas, where the voters there defeated a, a ballot measure that would have paved the way for a state ban on abortion. This was surprising to many folks, given the red nature of the state. To what do you attribute that win for uh, pro-choice advocates? I thought this was so fascinating because when I was looking at the polling in the lead up to primary day in Kansas on this issue, you all, you actually saw the anti-abortion rights side of the uh, um, of the debate appearing to lead. And it seemed like a lot of political observers mm -hmm. were saying they'll be able to eke out some sort of victory. But no, the turnout was really incredible for those, um, you know, looking to uh, preserve abortion rights in Kansas. And I think it speaks to, you know, the turnout turnout apparatus and, um, you know, the resources that Democrats and abortion rights organizations are pouring into states like Kansas, which is a very conservative state. That being said, though, I'm hearing a lot of Democrats and um, abortion rights advocates saying this morning, well, this is an omen for Republicans and anti-abortion advocates going into November. This shows that the base is fired up over this issue. That's very true. However, the majority of Americans, when they head to the polls in November, they're not not going to be voting yes or no on a ballot initiative. They're going to be voting for a candidate. And that candidate is going to be talking about a number of issues, whether that's inflation, crime, the border, 
gas prices, abortion. There are so, there's so much ground to cover. So the question is whether abortion is a priority for voters. And the polling that we have seen shows it's not a, a top priority for the majority of voters. So, you know, however, I think it's a fair point to say that this is evidence that um, you can turn out on the issue of abortion. I think you're going to see Democrats and those on the uh, abortion right side of the debate really trying to push that. And we also wanted to talk about the war of the two Eric's in which Donald Trump endorsed Eric. Uh, this is the Missouri race uh, between Eric Greitens and Eric Schmidt. And Eric Schmidt uh, is, so this is for the uh, Senate seat, U.S. Senate seat in Missouri. Uh, Schmidt is, uh, was, was victorious by, I think, a, almost a wider than expected uh, margin, this being the the candidate that is by far preferred by the Republican establishment, given that Greitens has this extreme scandal-plagued past. And I think they were worried about him as a general election candidate, even in Missouri. So this one is certainly a sigh, a breathing a sigh of relief for Republican leadership, who, who the people who are worried about Trump, Trump candidates you know, going too far and being off message for, for general elections. Is, is that right? Yes, such a sigh of relief. We saw a lot of money going into Eric Schmidt and actually a lot of resources also going into Vicki Hartzler, um, who was running in that race as well. And talking to sources on the ground in Missouri, they would say that, you know, to defeat Eric Greitens, because we know that Eric Greitens was leading in the polls at some point during this campaign, um, it would take two candidates to bring him down. And I think that third candidate with Vicki Hartzler very much could have played a role in that. But in terms of um, the Trump endorsement, look, uh, after a lot of these primaries this cycle, a lot of us are writing pieces as, you know, uh, reflecting over what did the what did we learn about the Trump endorsement? Was it a good night for him? Was it not a good night for him? Well, I, I, I guess Trump can technically claim victory because he <laughs> did endorse Eric. I, I maybe you could say he he didn't win because another Eric lost. I don't know, but um, it's just my favorite. That's just uh, the, the funny. It's it's something out of V for the Onion, honestly. Yeah, there there is this push to kind of come out of these things with grand narratives. You know, did Trump have a win? Did progressives have a have you know have a losing night? When so often the real story is, you know, did progressive losses really prove the strength of some of these groups like APAC and DMFI who've thrown millions of dollars at making sure the squad doesn't get any bigger. And what are the progressives going to do about that if they want to stand any chances going forward? But thank you so much for joining us, Julia. Thank you. CNN's profits are expected to fall below the $1 billion mark for the first time since 2016. This comes as its new boss, Chris Licht, scrambles for new ways to generate revenue. According to the New York Times, Licht has tapped a longtime friend, Chris Marlin, to help solve the financial pickle, someone who has no experience in cable news operations. Quote, Marlin has floated a variety of revenue-generating ideas since joining CNN, including striking advertising deals with major tech companies like Microsoft. Mr. Marlin has also mentioned selling sponsorships to corporate underwriters, extending CNN's brand in China, and expanding CNN Underscored, an e-commerce initiative. Hmm. Wonder if those ideas will work. <laughs> I don't know, expanding in China, how that will change their China coverage. That's always the question about that kind of stuff. Um, look, they're struggling to find an audience, uh, and you know that's something we've been talking about on the show a lot. 
they built this very Trump-obsessed, resistance, liberal kind of audience. I was on, uh, I, I did a segment for News Nation last night, I think, and the segment before me was uh, talking with, with a guest who had done uh, some kind of profile of uh, what CNN and MSNBC and Fox are like and how their ideological trajectory has changed. And this guest uh, was telling um, uh, Dan Abrams, this was on his News Nation show last night, the guest was saying that CNN has actually, by some stretches of, by, depending how you define this, become more liberal than MSNBC mm. uh, in the last five years or something. Mm. Um, so they, you know, they built themselves a young, very liberal audience, but young, very liberal people are are not watching cable they're news watching anymore. TV. They're they're getting rid of their cable subscriptions. I think I am finally ready to lose my cable subscription. I have one because I've always thought, well, I'm in the TV journalism mm. business. I think it is convenient and important to be able to turn on the TV and flip from Fox's coverage to MSNBC's coverage to CNN, et cetera. I don't do that very much anymore. <laughs> when I'm done with this job at the end of the day, I want to like, you know, watch Netflix or HBO like everyone else. And uh, so I, I think, and if, so if I'm ready to move on, I have to imagine this is a dwindling viewership pool. Poll. Yeah, look, I, so I do think that there is a kind of a technology aspect of this that's not anybody's fault. The, the pivot to YouTube, the fact that younger people like different kinds of content, they like to have streaming content that's kind of on in the background all day. And the way that older folks did used to leave the news on in the background or at airports all day and those kinds of things. But they expect a more interpersonal approach. They like the idea of opinion, opinion news. They want to take but a take from somebody that they trust and who shares their politics, which for young people basically doesn't exist on the mainstream news. But I think another part of it, especially when you're talking about a place like CNN, is I think there has been this effort historically by CNN to be the kind of neutral, kind of middle ground Switzerland of the news. And like so many folks who misdiagnose the mood of the country, they think, and I talk about this on my radar today, that to appeal to a broader slice of the pie, you need to create the average aggregate of the most left and the most right person and just find whatever that middle point is and pitch to that. The problem is that's not how people form their views. And there's literally nobody there. There's nobody there. This like weird chimera of a liberal and a conservative like that they exist in, you know, Liz Cheney and never Trump Republicans and like Michael Steele and the kind of people that they find to go on these programs. What they don't have is an honest, robust debate with people who are actual Trump supporters, right? They love to have never Trump people on. Most people are actually Trump supporters. Have those conservatives on and have them talking with Not most people, but the largest faction with it, right? Yeah, most yes, conservatives. Yes, if you're going to have a conservative point of view, why have someone that represents the marginal conservative point of view? And I say that as we sit here as a libertarian and Green Party. <laughs> but like, yeah, know, let's not take this too far here. <laughs> but at least you know, I I know what I know what Democrats say. I know what they're thinking. I'm plugged in and watching what they're doing in a way that they are not paying attention to the broader energies on either side of the aisle. A lot of the populist energies, a lot of the independent energies, they are not tapped in at all. And I think that's reflected in their coverage and their viewership numbers. We should do a day where I, we, 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 maybe for Halloween or something, <laughs> you act like you're a CNN resistance liberal <laughs> Democratic Party person and I'll act like I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Trump MAGA person and, and we, we see how the show goes. Well, Robbie, I gotta say, as a black woman, I really just think it's oh, privileged oh. to lean too much The Dems are destroying this country? <laughs> Biden is killing us all right now! <laughs>
<laughs> well, look, now the audience has a taste of what they're really getting here. <laughs> and what they're avoiding by not watching mainstream TV. Well, it is. It, what they're avoiding, in part, is discussions that are utterly unproductive. Yeah. That are, are, I mean, we have longer form conversations yeah. here. We have an actual exchange of views. There's no exchange of views happening on any of those channels whatsoever. There's no, no one brought on who disagrees with the host. That never happens. No. It's just more, here's what I think. Here's more of what I think. Yeah. You're, oh, you're so right. Yeah. Rap segment, which is just boring. Who wants to yeah. watch that? When I am selecting and curating panels you know, for my own podcast, I am often, I, I'm not looking for people I agree with. I frequently am struggling to find people who I know have an, an active conflict with each other, but who are also willing to come to the table. And that can be difficult, it's hard to do. right? It's, all, it's, a, it's particularly difficult, I often find, to get liberals to come and sit down with leftists and have their views challenged. But some of the, my favorite conversations, most robust conversations, have been with folks who people, even in my own political cohort, you know, they revile. And I sometimes get a lot of backlash for those episodes, but they are the most constructive episodes, the most interesting episodes, because so often people are talking past each other. And when you get them in the same room, they can either explain why it is that they hold this belief that's contrary or realize that they actually aren't that far apart after all. And I think if we had actual right-wing and left-wing populists in the room more often, the contradictions in our belief systems would be exposed. The lies that parties tell each other about who each other are and what their priorities are would be exposed. And the fact that, frankly, both corporate parties offer very little in terms of concrete solutions would be exposed in a way that made people want to reinvest in politics instead of being so checked out. Well, tomorrow on Rising, we'll be going over the latest on the monkeypox outbreak, as well as following the aftermath of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.